my turning point came one new year when I had said to my ex-husband, this is going to be another dry January. And I got drunk on New Year's Day. Not a good and start. Not a good start. <laughs> and it was because there was lots of leftover booze. You know the story. There's always a reason. There was leftover booze and I thought I'll get rid of it. And he'd taken the children out and it was a beautiful day. And I knew that that was the day. And it was almost like going out in a ball of flames. When he got home and he saw that I was drunk, he said, this is it. And I actually slept at my parents' house that night. And I woke up the next morning woozy, confused, but with a sick feeling in my stomach. And he walked into the room that I was sleeping in and he said if you don't stop this I'm taking the children and that was the moment welcome to the tribe this is your weekly podcast from tribe sober whether you're already sober striving to be sober or just plain sober curious you need a tribe you need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone you need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, tribe leader, Janet Gorond. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober podcast. It's episode 189. My name is Janet Gorond. I'm the founder of Tribe Sober, and I'm your host for this podcast. Here at Tribe Sober, we help people to change their relationship with alcohol and then to go on and actually thrive in their alcohol-free lives. And over the last seven years, we've helped thousands of people to do just that. And we created Tribe Sober because we know from experience that it's really hard to change your drinking habits alone. You need to find a new tribe because social norms are so powerful. And that's why connecting with others on the same path will keep you on track and inspire you to keep going. So at Tribe Sober, we're all about community. It's a community where everyone strives for an alcohol-free lifestyle and many of our members are already thriving in their alcohol-free lives and inspiring others. Each week we feature a community voice just to give you a flavour of the awesomeness of our tribe. I joined Tribe Sober in June 2020 to ditch the booze for good. By joining the tribe and with the continuous inspiration and support, I got it right. I only wish I'd done it sooner. Being with Tribe Sober made me see that I didn't have a problem, but rather an opportunity to create a life I didn't want to escape from. It took me a whole year and 84 day ones, but I never gave up and the tribe never gave up on me. I'm happy to say I'm two and a half years sober now and loving my sober life. I continue to grow with my tribe. Thank you Tribe Sober for giving me my life back. So if you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. My guest today is Nikki Clutie. She's a coach who also teaches mindfulness and yoga, and she's been in recovery for 10 years. I began by asking Nikki to introduce herself. Thank you for having me, Janet. It's such an honor to be talking to you. I've been watching the work that you do for a long time, and I've heard amazing things about you and Tribe Sober. So this is very exciting for me. My name is Nikki Clutie, and I am a life coach and a mindfulness trainer for corporates. I'm a yoga teacher, and I am a mother of two magnificent children, a, a pre-teen or a tween and a teenager. I moved to Scarborough just over a year ago from Stellenbosch and I'm busy settling into a new tribe, a different tribe, trying to find my tribe and I turned 50 last week so it feels like this is a very 
auspicious time in my life. Okay, well, happy birthday for last week. Thank you. Thank you. So I know that you've been sober for at least a decade now. Can you cast your mind back and tell us your drinking story? It's actually coming up to 10 years in January. January 2024 will be 10 years. I can't believe that I've stopped counting the minutes, hours and days like I used to when I first stopped drinking. I, like many people, started drinking as a response, a misguided response to childhood trauma. I led an absolutely beautiful fairy tale childhood until the age of 13 when we had a home invasion mm-hmm. and yeah I was I was raped in my bed <sighs> under my parents roof and even though I got all the support that I think many young girls of that age wouldn't have got at that time, in terms of medical, legal, etc., it was the mid or actually close to the late 80s, and there was absolutely no question of mental health impact. And I had a few days off school and then I went back to school and the message that I received was to put a smile on my face and to carry on. And I did that masterfully. I'm so sorry to hear that. It's just horrific. Thank you, Janet. I realize it's a really powerful thing and I drop it into conversations now because it's so long ago and I'm Mm. so well-versed in it. But now that my daughter is exactly that age, I can actually feel and see what a thing it was, and especially in the absence of coping mechanisms. Yeah. So my schoolwork started to plummet, or my, my grades started to plummet, and my behavior started becoming very unlovely, and I, I turned to alcohol. So I started stealing booze out of my parents' wine cabinet. Growing up in Stellenbosch, surrounded by winelands, we had cupboards and cupboards full of of bottles of wine. And it was just something that I started experimenting with, telling myself that I was a naughty teenager, because, of course, it coincided with hitting puberty and all the normal hormonal fluctuations that go along with that. And... I discovered that it was a wonderful way of not having to deal with any of the difficult emotions and the flashbacks and the proper PTSD that just wasn't even diagnosed. So that's when it started and it pretty much continued in various shapes and forms up until the age of 40 when I stopped many people start drinking as teenagers don't they and some people grow out of it but some of us don't (laughs) so what happened as you got into your 20s and you started building a career yeah so for the reasons you mentioned my drinking behavior my problematic drinking behavior very much went under the radar because I was labeled as a naughty teenager I used to grab a bottle of wine, drink it in the morning before I even got to school. And then I'd arrive at school at first break, drunk, to Rhenish Girls High, a beautiful school, a wonderful school, and no one would bat an eyelid. And I continued to master or to hone the skill of drinking undercover and then integrating myself into society. By the time I got to the end of the last year of school, I sorted myself out somewhat because I had a wonderful boyfriend who helped me to see that I actually did have value as, a, as an individual, as a human. I mean, I'd gone through all the suicidal ideations and all the self-harm 
during these teenage years. But by matric, it really looked like I'd sorted myself out. And I was prefect, and I was head of house, and I got the grades that allowed me to go to university. And then, through university, everyone drinks. It was in Stellenbosch, and <laughs> I lived in a house full of wonderful young people, and drinking was a big part of our, our life. And I do remember drinking in a way that was different to them. Mm. And I do remember noting it. And I do remember even then starting to have what I now know, blackouts. So you were a binge drinker really once you started. There was no off switch. Absolutely. And the impacts, the subtle but long-lasting impacts started happening then already with me deciding to skip my final French exam because there was a house party and I thought, oh, I'll just carry those credits over to the next year because I feel like drinking tonight with everyone else. You know, so it looked like I was doing the same as everyone else, but I was already starting to really sabotage myself. And I then went to London after I graduated. I went to London and of course there it was work hard, play hard. I got into recruitment and it was absolutely par for the course that you would be at work at seven in the morning and you'd work until seven at night and then you'd go to the pub and get absolutely hammered and everyone would get hammered and it was great bonding because the next morning you drag yourself into the office. I remember at 10 o'clock there'd be a sandwich man who'd come around and you'd get your pack, the Trinity, the packet of crisps, the soft drink and a chocolate and power through until the next night or that night when you'd go out and do it all again. Yeah, I did that too. And we we compare (laughs) hangovers in the morning. Oh, I'm so fragile this morning. And it was almost a badge of honor, wasn't it? The hangover. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) And it was also there though, that I started looking at my flatmates and seeing that I was drinking differently to them because we'd all go out together. But they would have many days where they wouldn't drink. I was always finding a flatmate who could drink with me. And I remember even waking up in the middle of the night to go to have a wee and stopping in this grimy little flat in Southfield, stopping in the lounge and having a cigarette because I still smoked at that point as well. And if there was a glass of wine on the table, just having a little sip of that. And it was just... It was an absolutely integral part of the fabric of my life. And that was where I had one or two horrific blackouts where I'd wake up in the morning and I'd know that I'd got home safely, but I couldn't remember how. And that started making me think, here I was in the heart of London, sitting in a bus shelter. I just, yeah. But nevertheless, I continued um, yeah, we, t- we take so many risks, don't we? I, I had the same kind of work hard, play hard nonsense going on. And when I look back now, I think, wow, I was so fortunate in a way. So many things could have gone horribly wrong. Oh, Janet, it is absolutely terrifying to think back. I remember my now ex-husband saying to me once when we were living together, and he was also partying hard, I remember him saying, God, last night they poured you through the letterbox. You were that hammered. You know, someone would point a cab in the direction of my house and deliver me. And, yeah, he said you were poured through the letterbox. And we both thought it was funny. Oh, yeah, Um, we do. We turn it into a funny story, don't we? I nearly drowned in my bath once when I was 25. I just passed out and I had to be resuscitated and everything. And we, we turned that into a, a funny story. You know, it was, did you hear about Janet and her bath? What an idiot. And, Absolutely. you know, when I think back, why didn't I get some help back then? I thought of myself as someone uh, that just went over the top now and again. I didn't have yes. a problem. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. I recall as well that I had one or two partners in crime. I could always call on them. 
And we would try hard to limit ourselves to a glass. And I remember in London in those days, you could either get a big glass or a small glass. And a big glass was essentially half a bottle of wine. And we'd go and try to hold each other accountable. But of course, the wheels would come off. It was something that was done together. And I think that also made it feel more acceptable. You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. Yeah. But Did you ever drink alone, Nikki? All the time. Yeah. All Just the checking. Time. <laughs> yeah. All the time. I didn't need to drink on my own a lot initially because I always lived with quite a lot of people. But it was when I moved to a flat where I was living with one chap and his fiancée and I was on my own and I'd never drink with them and I would get absolutely hammered in my room. And I was so ashamed of it. And I remember they were really clean living. And I remember feeling so ashamed of how I was self-medicating because I knew that I was trying to nurse my broken heart through drowning myself in wine. And they must have known what was going on. But I would still emerge the next day groomed and go off to work. To all intents and purposes, I looked like I had it all together. So it was this yeah. dreadful shame yeah. factor being woven yeah. in and the secrets. Um, it takes such energy, doesn't it, to keep the show on the road. It takes enormous energy to just pretend that everything is fine. And it's, it's far from fine. And we know in our hearts, don't we, it's not at all fine. But it's so easy to pretend and no, nobody really guesses. And I guess that's the definition of a functioning alcoholic, isn't it? And I think the world is full of them. Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. I, so the, the ex-husband that I'd broken up with at that time, we got together again and got married. And he had an opportunity to go and work in America. And it was then that I really started realizing that something was very badly wrong because we moved to Southern California and I couldn't work for the first six months because of the work visa situation. He was traveling a lot and I really got into my yoga, which has always been a part of my life because my mother and my grandmother were were both yogis. But there was this underbelly to this healthy Californian life that I was living, which was that when my then husband would go and travel, I would walk down to the local supermarket and there were always bottles of wine on special. And I would always buy two bottles thinking or telling myself, even though I knew that I would drink them both, I would tell myself, well, it's a good deal. And then I have some wine for later (laughs) in the week. So I'd go to yoga for hours, come back home. I'd, I'd start writing myself lists of things to do rather than drink. And I would always end up drunk. And my ex started phoning me to chat from wherever he was. And he'd say to me, you're slurring. And I started covering up. And it was there where no one else was drinking. You know, the Southern Californians, it was very clean living. Yeah. And... I realized that I had no pause button, no stop button. And we'd go to a pub or we'd go to a restaurant and I would drink beforehand and I'd drink afterwards just to get the same buzz that I used to get in London. And it was round about then that we started thinking about starting a family. So were you in your 30s by then? I was in my 30s. Yeah. So London was... It was about eight years from, say, mid-20s to early 30s. And then early 30s in California, where I remember not being able to fall pregnant and going to specialists. And there were physiological issues that needed to be dealt with. But I remember thinking in the back of my mind, maybe it's because of my drinking. And even that desire for a child, which was so powerful, wasn't enough to make me stop drinking. And it was then that I started realizing this thing has become me. And my ex and I decided to move back to South Africa to go into the whole IVF thing. 
And it turned out that I was pregnant. And that was the first time that I stopped drinking for 20 years. Wow. And was it difficult? Not at all. That's the crazy thing. The not drinking was an absolute delight. I was overjoyed. I was overjoyed to be pregnant. I was overjoyed to not be drinking. And I absolutely loved both of my pregnancies. And when I was breastfeeding as well, I didn't drink at all. I was the model mother. And I remember feeling so released from the hold of alcohol. And then when my son started weaning, I started having the odd drink, but I'd be very careful about time and I'd express if I knew that I was going to be drinking alcohol. So I was very responsible. And by the time he was off breast milk altogether, I was back to drinking. And that's when I realized it's worse than ever because it almost felt like I was trying to make up for lost time. Mm-hmm. And I was part of a group of mothers who also had little babies. And this dreadful term, suicide hour, where the babies typically cry and, you know, five o'clock in the afternoon and there's feeding and bathing and all that. We would all get together in the afternoon and have a number of bottles of wine, champagne. The mommy juice. That's it, (laughs) to make it look more acceptable. And we'd all be quite glamorous and have lipstick on and drink champagne. But we were actually just getting a little bit sozzled to handle that time. And... Yes, I mean, the the alcohol's become a parenting aid these days almost, hasn't it? It's not even just parenting, Janet. It's horrified me that even last night at an event I went to about AI for startups, there was one particularly difficult question that came up, and the host said, we'll need a bottle of wine to discuss that question. <laughs> there was a ripple of laughter around the room, and I remember thinking... It is so much a part of our societal way that, I mean, imagine saying, oh, this is going to be too difficult. Let's just go and mainline some heroin. Yeah, yeah. And then everyone laughs. Or even let's let's smoke a cigarette. I mean, cigarettes are pretty of a no-no these days, but alcohol, it's it's so normalized. And all of the marketing, of course, every time you watch a movie, the wine or the whiskey comes out within the first five minutes. It's incredible. So there was this dissonance between being a mother and taking this responsibility so seriously. There's nothing that I've taken more seriously in my life, aside from my sobriety. And yet, so once I'd put my son to bed and he was looked after and I'd read the stories and I'd done all the things, I'd dive into wine. Both Mm. my children have been amazing sleepers, so I always knew that they wouldn't necessarily wake up. And I'd wake up in the morning going, I was drunk again last night. And feeling absolutely appalled and saying tonight is going to be different. And of course it wasn't. And when I fell pregnant with my daughter, same thing, stopped drinking with absolute gratitude and delight. And she struggled to breastfeed, so I was back to drinking much quicker than with my son. And I remember then starting to do things like having dry Januaries, because in my mind, if I could not drink voluntarily for a month, that was definitely proof that I didn't have a problem. Meanwhile, Googling, what are the signs of being an alcoholic? And I would find time and time again that the moment I started, I would just fall off and I would fall harder and faster than ever before. And my ex had seen the writing on the wall because what would always happen, my pattern was, and it breaks my heart to think of it now, my pattern was not to drink a lot in public, yeah. So I'd typically top up before I went out mm. so that in public I could appear to be normal and in control, but then I'd get home and then I'd drink a lot. And when I had been drinking, I would go to this dark place. My ex would actually say that he could see my face dropping and he knew that I had turned. And I would put on sad music 
and I would cry and cry and cry and cry, or I would fight with him. Oh, and the yeah. rage that came out, he always said it was disproportionate to the conflict that we were having within our marriage because we didn't have an easy marriage. But all that unprocessed trauma and anger and mm. hurt and abandonment came out and he unfortunately was the recipient so he called me on it so many times Janet I mean the emails saying this is out of control you have got to stop you have a problem and me saying this time it will be different and I used to say I'll just cut down (laughs) as if we can (laughs) this is it but it's that it's that absolute horror, isn't it, at the thought of having to stop. Yes. What, what would life be like without my wine? <laughs> right. Yeah. And I remember eventually he said to me, right, I need you to go for a liver function test because I'm actually concerned about your health. And off I went for my liver function test and it was perfect because <laughs> otherwise I was healthy. I was yogering, I ate yeah. well, I was doing exercise. And the liver is unbelievable in terms of its ability to regenerate. So, again, I had this approval. I then started actively looking for people to confirm that I had a problem. And I found a top psychologist in, in Stellenbosch who clearly, even though she's a wonderful psychologist, did not understand addiction. Because mm-hmm. I remember, I sat down in front of her and I said... The reason I'm here is because I'm deeply concerned about my relationship with alcohol. And her advice after one or two sessions was for me to try cut to down. cut back. Yes. <laughs> and I said, I always say don't that. understand. Yeah. She, yeah. Said, she said, just find that point at which you can't stop and then don't That's go if. beyond there. Yeah. And I'd, I'd go back to her and I said, it doesn't work. And then she yeah. said, her second suggestion was for me to try a different tipple. <laughs> yeah, so well, then I started trying to yeah. drink vodka tonic. Yeah, yeah. I know. I call it the rules. We change our drinks. Right. We only drink on a Tuesday and a Friday. But, oh, and then we go ahead and break all the rules. But yeah. yeah, I mean, once we've crossed a line into dependence, there's no going back, is there? We have to accept right. that's not going to be part of our lives. And then right. put all that energy that we've spent pretending that everything's fine. We have to redirect that energy into creating an alcohol-free life that we love, that's beautiful. And we can, and we've done that, you and I. (laughs) We have now. It's that creating a sober, alcohol-free life, that's the first part. But then the second part for me is that you love. Yes, yes. It takes a lot of work. That takes time. That takes time. You're right. I remember finally going to a a doctor, a medical doctor in Stellenbosch again. And he asked me exactly how much I drank. And he then took me into a little consulting room, apart from all of the doctor's offices. And he sat me down and he said, you are an alcoholic. He Mm -hmm. said, I'm not judging you. He said, I am also an alcoholic. And he said, I'd say that about 80% of Stellenbosch is functioning alcoholics. He said, but you have to do something about this now. And Janet, it was a relief to hear Yeah, good for him, good for him. Right. A bit of straight talking. That's what we need, isn't it? We don't need people pussyfooting around it. We need someone to say, you're an alcoholic, sort yourself out. Absolutely. This word, the alcoholic, society has stigmatized it to such an extent that society thinks that an alcoholic is a homeless man in the park. So we look at him and we think, well, I'm not like him. I'm fine. I've got a good job and a nice family. I'm not an alcoholic. So I always say to people, we've got to compare ourselves to the best version of ourselves that we could possibly be, never mind the homeless guy in the park, because it it limits our potential, even if it doesn't destroy us alcohol. So good for that doctor. Did you think about going to AA, incidentally? So I'd thought about it, and I had reached out to people many times, many times. 
I remember saying to my best friend, who is a psychologist, I remember saying to her, I am deeply concerned about my drinking. I think I'm an alcoholic. I want to go to rehab. And she looked me in the eyes. She'd known me for my entire drinking life. And she said to me, you do not have a drinking problem. You do not need to go to rehab. Spend that money on couples counseling with your partner. And incidentally, she was the one person who has pretty much permanently left my life since I stopped drinking. So, yes, I had reached out to people so many times. I had attended AA meetings, but it didn't resonate with me because mm. I'm not a Christian. And I think that I was also still looking for excuses to not actually deal with what I knew was there. And my turning point came one new year when I had said to my ex-husband, this is going to be another dry January. And I got drunk on New Year's Day. Not a good and start. <laughs> not a good start. And it was because there was lots of leftover booze. You know the story. There's always a reason. There was leftover booze, and I thought I'll get rid of it. And he'd taken the children out, and it was a beautiful day. And I knew that that was the day. And it was almost like going out in a ball of flames. When he got home and he saw that I was drunk, he said, this is it. And I actually slept at my parents' house that night. And I woke up the next morning woozy, confused, but with a sick feeling in my stomach. And he walked into the room that I was sleeping in and he said, if you don't stop this, I'm taking the children. And that was the moment. And I reached out to... A GP, the GP that I'd seen, and said, I need help. And they said, here are three places that you can contact. The third one that I contacted, this Dr. Pierre Lowe at Sienza, he said, come in and bring your husband. And I went in, and we both sat down, and... He explained alcoholism and he uses the disease model. And I remember him writing on the whiteboard behind him, this is a degenerative, obsessive-compulsive disease. And basically, it's going to kill you. Oh, yeah. And he went into the neuroscience of it. And he said, let's fight the disease and not the person. And he said to me, are you going to stop? And I said, yes. He said, today? And I went, no, tomorrow. And I said to my husband, I'd like to go out for a meal and I want to have a bottle of wine to mark the end of this journey. And he was so nervous. I remember sitting in my yoga studio before we went out and drinking a bottle of wine because I knew that one bottle wouldn't be enough for me at the dinner table. And we went out for a meal and it was very civilized and then that was that. And I never ever look back and I think the reason I never looked back is because I had relapsed so many times before yeah. so by the time I got to this man with this outpatient program I went three times a week for about six months and then I kept going once a week for about two years I was so excited yes. about being sober oh yeah um, but Initially, I was very depressed at the prospect oh, of yes. life without alcohol. But as time went on, I was thinking, wow, this is great. And now when people join Tribe Sober, they're often depressed. And I say, yeah. be excited. This is yeah. a life-changing journey and you're just starting on it. And I've That's seen nice. again and again people's lives open up to a huge oh. degree. So it's really something to be excited about. But we have to change our mindset, don't we? So that we no longer see alcohol as something desirable. We just mm -hmm. see it for the poison that it is. And that's, that's when yeah. things become easier because we don't yearn for it anymore. Correct. Correct. I was depressed at the thought of stopping and I was very depressed once I stopped. And what I was depressed about was the fact that it felt like a veil had been lifted from my eyes because I knew that I would see my marriage to be unfulfilling, and I did. 
I knew that I would see motherhood to be very hard, and I did. I knew that I would have to face up to all of my demons from my past that I had never actually processed. And that is an ongoing thing. I'm still unpacking that now. And I actually laugh because when I turned 50 last week, so many people have said to me, gosh, I wouldn't have said that you're 50. And I know that it's No, you look great. Oh, thank you, Janet. But I don't think that it's got anything to do with my looks. I think it's got everything to do with the fact that there is still a really, and I say this with compassion for myself, childlike way of mm. about me. Yeah. And I put that down to the fact that it's said that we stop growing emotionally yes. when we start drinking. Have you heard yes. that? Yes, right. absolutely. Because our emotional maturity, it just stalls, doesn't it? Because we, we're numbing our feelings, so we don't know how to cope with all of those feelings. And we say to people when they stop drinking with us, we say, you've got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable now. And that's how you do it when you're desperate for a drink because you've got all these feelings. Just sit with the feelings. They won't kill you and they'll pass. You're right. You're right. But that's the thing. So I feel like if I effectively stopped growing emotionally at the age of, say, 15, and then I stopped drinking 10 years ago, I'm really only 25 now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was 18 for a long, long time. (laughs) Right. And, And it's a good and a bad thing. So, yes... The sitting with it, that's the really mature, adult, hard stuff to do. Yeah. And this is why I teach people mindfulness, because for me, it's the only way to cope with a world that is so full of disappointment and sadness and difficulty and challenge. But there is also such a wonderful thing about having this almost delayed adulthood. Because there is still a youthfulness and a joy and a fun to Mm. doing some things and being fully present. Mm. That perhaps if we'd been maturing according to our chronological age, we would have become numb to that by now or blasé about it. And also, when you think about those normal drinkers, you know, the one that can have one or two glasses, those people that we were always very jealous of, they don't actually get this opportunity, do they, to almost have a rebirth and and live life very differently because they don't need to. And I don't know if you've seen that book by Laura McCowan called We Are the Luckiest. Have a look at that. It's brilliant. I will. She's great. Her argument is that this might seem like our worst nightmare, having to give up alcohol, but in fact, it's the best thing that's ever happened to us. I agree with you completely. I think that what made it bearable for me is the fact that I had accepted 100% that I would never be able to drink like those freaks. Yes, normal people. (laughs) And, And I remember hearing that... Trying to moderate when you're an alcoholic is like getting into a boxing ring where you are going to get knocked out every time. Yeah. You can yeah. duck and dive and try to avoid this, but you're going to get that sucker punch. And the only way that you can ever avoid that is to just not step in the ring. Yeah. So even on my worst days and I've been dipping into menopause the last 18 months without even realizing it. Buying a new home, renovating, it has been an absolute shit show, to use a very refined term. And not even at my lowest point did I think about drinking. And that's how I know that I am on the right path because I've I've accepted that there is nothing so bad that alcohol won't make it worse. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. And that helps. Every Saturday afternoon, we open up our Tribe Sober Zoom Cafe. It's a safe space where our members can connect, check in, and just shoot the breeze about alcohol-free living. If you'd like to be a guest at the cafe one Saturday, just drop us an email at Janet at tribesober.com that's janet j-a-n-e-t at tribesober.com and we'll send you an invitation 
Yeah. And this moderation thing, I mean, we call it the moderation trap. And I spent a whole decade trying and failing, trying and failing to moderate. And the worst thing about that is it you're just doing the hardest bit over and over again because those first few weeks and then you manage it for a while and then you drink to blackout and then you start again. It's a miserable cycle to be trapped in. And what I didn't realize when I was trapped in that was that it's so much easier just to ditch the stuff. It's a shit show to paraphrase you for six months maybe and then you get a whole new life. It's so worth that investment. Absolutely. What I found very helpful as well was understanding the typical timeline of recovery. And yes. I'm sure that there are many variations on this, but my understanding of it, and I've used this with a lot of people who've approached me about stopping as well, is that typically 0 to 15 days would be your withdrawal. Yeah. And then 15 to 45, more or less, would be your honeymoon. Yes, the That's pink cloud. Yes, mm. where your dopamine levels are spiking because suddenly mm. your body doesn't have its drugs so it has to produce and it mm. overproduces. And then you hit the wall. And yeah. the wall can last anything from 45 to 90 or whatever it might mm. be. But then once you're beyond that, then you start to regulate your neurotransmitters. All of that starts to level and you actually start showing up in a way that feels manageable. And this is why I have such an issue with rehabs, inpatient rehabs that release people just oh. as they're going to hit the wall. It drives Absolutely. me Absolutely. so mad. And often right. release them into the world with no coping mechanisms. They've just locked them away from booze for three weeks. What's that going to achieve? That's Can what always stopped me going to rehab. I thought, well, it, it'll be great that I don't drink for three weeks, but what on earth happens after that? And then you get that white knuckling, which to me yeah. is such a heartbreaking term, right? That sense yeah. of just holding it's... on for dear life. Yeah. I remember once doing a bungee jump at that very high bridge on the garden route. I remember standing there, and you have to stand with your toes over the edge of the ledge that you're going to jump off. And the weight of the rope starts pulling you forward. And I remember trying to lean back, but just feeling that this resistance was futile. And that sooner or later, you're just going to get pulled off. And that's that white knuckling. God, I feel anxious even thinking about it. Like you say, the energy that you expend, trying to fight or trying to moderate or trying to control this beast Yes, I mean, willpower doesn't work full stop. There's been a lot of research into willpower quite recently, and they've you know, concluded it's a finite resource. So it might get you through dry January. I used to do that too, to prove I didn't have a problem. But you can't sustain your sobriety with willpower. That's when you have to change your thinking about drinking and realize that, that it's going to destroy you if you carry on. That's all in our subconscious, really, the way that we see alcohol. All those limiting beliefs that we have to smash. We have to realize that, yes, we can socialize without alcohol. Yes, we can relax without alcohol. I love what you just said, because people often say to me, gosh, Nikki, you're the strongest person I know because you've mm -hmm. been sober. And I'm going, this is easy. Yes, yes. You know, Keeping that show on the road with a stonking hangover, that was difficult. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. So it's almost like pick your difficult. Yes. Choose your hard, we say sometimes. One of our coaches, Lynette, she's brilliant. When she was trying to quit drinking, she went to her therapist and she said, oh, this is so hard. And the therapist said to her, what's wrong with hard? And I love that. But we have to choose our hard because, yes, it's hard to give up drinking in the, those first few months. But how much harder to carry on destroying ourselves. I say to people sometimes, fast forward 10 years into the future, if you're still drinking, what is your life going to look like? And I have to say, when I was thinking about stopping long before I actually stopped, I reached out to everyone that I knew who'd stopped drinking because I needed to hear that it was possible and not just possible, but that it could be amazing. Yes, and yes. Yeah, having someone who is relatable 
is yeah. such a gift to, to yeah. say, if they can do it, maybe I can too. Yeah, so. and the community thing works so well because we've been doing this for eight years. We've got people in our community that have been sober for years now. So the newbies, they, they see these people and they think, wow, you know, if they can do it, maybe I can. And, and they seem to have a, a really nice life. They don't complain that it's, it's dull and boring without alcohol. So you need that inspiration of people further down the road, don't you? It's no good if everybody's at day one because you'll probably all relapse together. <laughs> but exactly. having people at all stages of the journey oh. is great, yeah. So let's talk about coaching. When and why did you decide to study coaching? When I separated from my ex-husband, I realized that I was going to have to start earning proper money and... I'd been working in non-profit since I got back from the States. I started working in non-profit and as a yoga teacher. And it was passion work, but it definitely wasn't going to support me in becoming financially independent. And I've always been interested in psychology and I've always been fascinated by people. And I have this deep, deep belief that we all have this knowing within us and that sometimes we just need a little bit of assistance to tap into that knowing. I love the fact with coaching that you aren't ever telling someone what to do. Yeah. That you are trained to ask the kind of questions that can tap into their deepest knowing. And to help them to see how they are getting in their own way. And I mean, I think about it. If I'd had someone to coach me in my active addiction to say to me what do you really feel that you know about your drinking I would have said I need to stop and asking but why aren't you and dealing with those objections those obstacles so yeah it, I think I would have stopped a lot sooner but who knows I'd also found through my yoga teaching that when people booked private classes with me they very often just wanted someone to hold space for them while they were working their way through difficult times. Yeah. Whether it was bereavement or relationship issues or whatever it might be. I didn't really know if I would have the ability to coach, but I thought I'm going to give it a try. And I did one course first through UCT and I absolutely loved it. And then... I did another course through Thoughtsmiths. I did the phase one and phase two. And it was just before COVID hit. It was actually quite a while before COVID hit, but I'd already been trained on how to work online. So by the time the world went online, I was already comfortable working in this way. Mm -hmm. And I've never looked back. Fantastic. Yeah, so the kind of coaching that I do is, is life coaching, and then also working with execs. So Okay, so are you working in corporates with mindfulness? Yeah, that's fantastic. So if someone's listening to this, Nikki, and, and they know that they've got to make a change just as we knew for too many years, mm. what would you say to them? Because the most difficult thing is accepting that you have a problem and then reaching out for help. What would you say to them? What can they do as a first step? I would say reaching out to someone who's going to call them on their bullshit. Yeah. They need to find because someone like that doctor you found. Exactly. Because exactly. we don't really listen to the husbands so much, do we? I mean, mine told me for at least had, uh, 10 years, I had a terrible problem and I, I really had to address it. But it's just like a kind of buzzing in your ear, isn't it? But Absolutely. sitting in front of a doctor... That's different. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and also someone who's heard it all before. Yeah. I think that that's really valuable because friends, well-meaning friends, don't want the dynamics in a friendship to change very often. Mm -hmm. And very often people have a vested subconscious interest in you carrying on being the yeah. way that you are. 
Especially if they're drinkers, they don't want anything to change. And if they're not drinkers, they'll say, well, cut down. You need someone that will really call you out on your bullshit, as you say. That's it. That's it. And who's heard it all before. I look for things like the blackouts. If if they're blackouts, if you are unable to moderate, those for me are already signs that you are probably an alcoholic. Yeah, and drinking alone. And then coming back from an event, I used to do that, where you look very much in control and then you come home and start drinking alone. Absolutely. And waking up with bruises. Absolutely awful. So for me, I would say reach out to someone who you know is going to tell you what you don't want to hear. Yeah. And would you do that, Nikki, for your coaching clients? Absolutely. Good. I'm very open about my recovery because I am so flippin' proud of it. And when people phone me for mentoring or coaching and they're still drinking, I say to them, I'm not going to take your money while you're still drinking because Mm. you need to first stop drinking. Because I know that I threw money at anything and everything except stopping. Yeah. And so many of us do that. We mm. try to change our partner, our job. We <laughs> blame our relationship, the load shedding, everything, yeah. until eventually we have to stop. So yeah. I say to my people, I say to people who've called me up, I'll say, call me when you're actually in recovery and then let's talk that might sound really brutal but it's my Mm -hmm. policy and i'll say to someone i refer them to science i'll send them to yourselves i'll say get the help that you need to deal with that thing and then you will see your life as it is so your coaching is for the stage when we've been sober for a few months and we think we've got it and but we're thinking now what i'm sober now what Let's explore who I am and what I really want to do. Exactly. And very often it'll be things like, I've realized that I can't bear to be with my partner anymore. Hmm. Yeah, it can be big things like that. Yeah, we've seen people make big changes, you know, leave the partner, leave the job, change countries, big things. But they were things that needed to be done. And that's why drinking keeps you stuck, doesn't it? It keeps you stuck because you can't see things clearly and you've got no energy to do anything about anything because you're so busy keeping the show on the road and pretending that you're fine. Oh, man. (laughs) But, yeah, Yeah. quit drinking, get all the energy, Mm. talk to someone like yourself about what happens next and life will be very, very different. So how can people contact you? The easiest way is through my website, which is meta, M-E-T-T-A, numbers365.com. So meta is the Sanskrit word for loving kindness, which is my approach. And the 365 is actually a breathing technique that I use with a lot of my clients. Otherwise, I'm on all the socials as meta365coach. Thank you so much for the show, Nikki and for your valuable insights. Let's pull out some key points. Nikki experienced trauma in her early teens when her family had a home invasion. Tragically, she was raped at the age of just 13. She had medical and legal support, but this was in the 80s and there was no attention paid to the mental health impact. After a few days off, Nikki was expected to return to school and carry on as usual. So she turned to alcohol, stealing booze out of her parents' wine cabinet. That helped to numb the pain and cope with the difficult emotions and the flashbacks. Of course, she had PTSD, although it wasn't actually diagnosed. In the mornings, Nikki would grab a bottle of wine and drink it before going to school, arriving drunk at school but she was developing the skill of drinking undercover and nobody called her out on it. And in spite of the drinking, she kept up with her schoolwork, became head of house and got the grades she needed to go to university. 
Once she got to university, there was no longer any need to be secretive as everybody drank. Although she did notice that not everybody drank quite like she did. Not everybody was having blackouts. After graduating, Nikki went to London and worked in recruitment. Very much a work hard, play hard culture. Working from 7am to 7pm and then going to the pub to get hammered with her colleagues. Still suffering from blackouts and sometimes not quite remembering how she got home. She moved into a flat with a guy and his fiancée and did a lot of drinking on her own when she was in her room. The next morning she would emerge from her solitary binge, perfectly groomed, looking like she had it all together. We agreed that it takes a huge amount of energy to keep the show on the road, to hold down a responsible job with a crashing hangover. Nikki moved to California, where her wine habit continued. Yoga had always been an important part of Nikki's life and she was alternating between doing yoga and drinking her wine. That bizarre mix of healthy living and self-destruction that so many of us get into. When she returned to South Africa, she was thrilled to discover that she was pregnant and she immediately stopped drinking for the first time in 20 years. And it wasn't difficult at all. However... Once her babies had finished breastfeeding, she started drinking again and got into the mommy juice scene. Once her children were sleeping, she would dive into the wine. Every morning she would wake up and vow not to drink that evening. But of course her resolution would always crumble by the end of the day. She was trapped in the groundhog day of daily drinking. Like many of us, Nikki would be able to drink normally at social events, but once she got home, she would carry on with the drinking on her own. Nikki's turning point came one New Year's Eve when she announced to her husband that she would be doing a dry January. Then she promptly got drunk on New Year's Day. The next morning, her husband announced that he would be taking their children away if she didn't quit. That was her wake-up call. She went to a GP who was very straight with her, telling her that alcohol would destroy her if she didn't address the problem. Nikki knew she wouldn't be able to moderate, and in fact she came out with a great analogy about moderation. She said, trying to moderate when you're an alcoholic is like getting into a boxing ring where you're going to get knocked out every time. You can duck and dive and try to avoid getting hit, but at some stage you'll get the sucker punch. The only way to avoid this is not to step into the ring in the first place. So Nikki got some help and did the work. She realised that it would be painful. She'd have to lift the veil and see that her marriage was unfulfilling, that motherhood was hard And most painful of all, she'd have to face up and process the demons from her childhood trauma. One of the things that really helped Nikki was being aware of the recovery timeline. As she said, there are many variations of this, but as a rule of thumb. Day 1 to day 15, you're in withdrawal. Day 15 to day 45, the pink cloud with dopamine levels spiking. From day 45 to 90 days, that's when you hit the wall. That's when it gets difficult again and a low mood might strike. But get beyond 90 days and you'll start regularising your neurotransmitters and things begin to feel manageable. So please keep that timeline in mind during early sobriety. Nikki shared that people often tell her that she is so strong for quitting alcohol. But as she said, you have to be very strong to be a functioning alcoholic, keeping the show on the road with a stonking hangover. That takes a huge amount of energy. And coping with an ever-increasing dependence and all the health issues that come along with alcohol consumption, that's really hard. So it's a matter of choosing your heart. Yes, it's hard to get through those first 90 days, But if you stick at it, your life will start changing in such a positive way as you become healthier and happier. Nikki is passionate about coaching 
and loves the fact that as a coach, her role is to help the client tap into their deepest knowing by asking the right questions. She also works in corporates and teaches mindfulness. And her advice to someone who is struggling is to reach out. Find someone who will call you out on your bullshit. She works with people in recovery, helping people to explore what they really want from their life now they are sober. Nikki's website is meta365.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. So let me finish by reading out a couple of messages from our chat rooms. Catherine says, I keep having to go back to day one. I feel ashamed when so many of you are nailing it. Vary from Scotland responds. Hi, Catherine. We all share your experience here. The one thing I've maintained consistently is checking in with this lovely group. Of all the groups I've been a part of over the years, and there have been many, this is undoubtedly the most positive, welcoming and non-judgmental space I've been lucky enough to be part of, thanks to all the lovely people in it. And so I keep coming back and keep trying and just reach double figures again. You'll get there when you're ready. For now, just keep practising. Oh, thank you, Vary, for those kind and encouraging words. And Catherine, keep at it. The only failure is to stop trying. This journey is about progress, not perfection. As Vary said, keep practising. If you'd like to join our amazing tribe who encourage and support each other 24-7, then just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard. It takes courage and grit and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain and we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards. And that's just for starters. So go to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.